Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. Before I continue, I want to give a bit of a shout-out. First, my shout-out to T. Legis, or T. Legis, who gave the podcast a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those types of reviews help make my day, but also help push the podcast up the rankings, and I really do appreciate it. I also want to thank Jim Sene, and I apologize if I mispronounced your last name. Jim was nice enough to give me a $20 donation through my website for the podcast, and I really do appreciate it. I do this full-time, and every dollar you give helps keep all of this going. You can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. If you want, you can also be a Patreon supporter for as little as $3 a month. Just go to Patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And those links are all in my show notes. From 1921 to 1948, three men served as Prime Minister of Canada. By far the longest was William Lyne Mackenzie King, who was in charge for over 21 years. But it wasn't a continuous stretch for King. Instead, King saw his time in office broken up by two men. The first was the very brief time of Arthur Meehan, and the second was a five-year stretch when Richard Bedford Bennett came to power. Unfortunately for Bennett, he served during one of the most difficult times in Canadian history. Today, I look at Canada's Great Depression Prime Minister, R.B. Bennett. Bennett was born in Hopewell, New Brunswick on July 3, 1870, and raised in a strictly conservative family that had little in the way of money. The eldest of six children, the family would work on their farm and practiced a daily habit of thrift. Prior to his parents, the family had been rich, owning a shipyard nearby. But when the shift to steam-powered ships began, their business suffered and eventually closed. One of the largest and last ships launched by the company was the Sir John A. Macdonald. Bennett would work in his youth and was seen as a loner by those around him. His mother would push him with ambition, which may have come as a result of her own frustrations with her husband and the family's difficult financial position. Thanks to a small legacy his mother received, he was able to attend the normal school in Fredericton, training to be a teacher. He then became a teacher at 16 and a principal by the age of 18. Alma Russell, who attended the school, described Bennett as tall, slim, freckled, who always sat upright in the wagon seat under a bowler hat that was too large for him, while also looking younger than his age. At the age of 20, he was able to save enough money to attend Dalhousie's School of Law. Still dealing with having little money, he would spend his time studying and working at the Weldon Library and as a newsroom manager at the Dalhousie Gazette. His fellow students described him as a student who only focused on school and did not take part in anything like rugby games. After graduating from Dalhousie University in 1893, Bennett practiced law in Chatham, New Brunswick for four years. And while there, he would run for town council and was elected by one vote, although some sources say 19 votes. But he chose not to stay in the community. He decided the time was right to move out to Calgary in 1897 and become the law partner of James Lougheed, who was the grandfather of future Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed. At the time when he got off the train in January of 1897, Alberta was not even a province yet, and Calgary was still a frontier town, but there was opportunity to be had. Bennett was known for being committed to business and his work. He did not drink, he was devoted to attending the church, and he never married. 
While living in Calgary, he lived alone in a hotel, and then a boarding house. He was a creature of habit as well, always taking his noon meal on work days at the Alberta Hotel. And when it came time for his social life, that was focused on his commitment to church. Lougheed made sure that Bennett met all the right people, and Lougheed was able to get along with Bennett, even though he was described as arrogant and reserved. He would say of Bennett, quote, obnoxiously aware of his own genius. In 1898, Bennett would win an election as the Conservative to the Assembly of the Northwest Territories, but he resigned his seat in 1900 for a failed run for the House of Commons. He would regain his seat in 1901 and won the 1902 election in his riding with 73% of the vote. By this point, the law firm and Calgary were booming, and Bennett became involved in the buying and selling of land. Before long, he was also buying oil leases, including with the Calgary Petroleum Products Company, which had the first big strike of Alberta oil in Turner Valley. In 1905, he attempted to win a seat in the new Alberta legislature. At the time, he was the first leader of the Alberta Conservative Party and was up against Alexander Rutherford of the Liberals. Unfortunately for Bennett, not only did his party only gain two seats while the Liberals picked up 22, but he did not even get his own seat, losing to William Cushing. Even with these election failures, Bennett was prospering in his law firm with Lougheed and Max Aitken. In 1908, he was one of five people appointed to the first library board in Calgary, which would establish the Calgary Public Library. In 1909, Bennett was elected to the Alberta legislature, but only served until 1911 when he resigned to run for a seat in the federal government. In 1910, Lougheed, by this point a senator, would say of his partner, quote, Bennett can solve any problem he puts his mind to. No man is quicker to strip a problem of unnecessary verbiage and translate it into simple and understandable language. Someday, Bennett will be called upon to solve the greatest problems in Canada. Someday, Canada will turn to him to get the country out of its difficulties. End quote. During this time, he became a director of Calgary Power Limited, and as the president of the organization for a time, he would initiate the construction of the first storage reservoir at Lake Minnewanka, the construction of the Kenanaskis Falls Hydro Station, and the creation of a second transmission line into Calgary. Finally, in 1911, Bennett was elected to the House of Commons as a Conservative, representing Calgary East. On November 20, 1911, he would give his first speech in the House of Commons, speaking about the government control of freight rates, government grain elevators, and trade unions. He would say, quote, The great struggle of the future will be between human rights and property interests. It is the duty and the function of government to provide that there shall be no undue regard for the latter that limits or lessens the other. End quote. Borden quickly found that being a member of the House of Commons was not all that he hoped for. When he took his seat, he gave up a CPR retainer that paid him $10,000 a year, or $230,000 today, and he found that there was little in the way of compensation for being an MP. He would write to a friend in late 1911, quote, I am sick of it here. There is little or nothing to do, and what there is to do is that of a party hack, or departmental clerk, or messenger. End quote. That didn't stop him from finding things to put his time behind, including the Naval Aid Bill of 1912-1913, in which he made a four-hour speech supporting it. 
Bennett did not always support his own government, though. He had his views on Canadian railways, tariffs, and the position of Canada in the Empire that differed from the party, and he would give a speech against his own government's National Railway Guarantee Bill of 1914. He also did not get along with several prominent members of the cabinet, including Arthur Meehan. During his speech against the bill, Meehan continually interrupted Bennett, which greatly angered him. Due to his streak of independence and going against the party line, he grew discouraged with Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden, and he was not appointed to the cabinet. The closest he came was serving as the Director General of National Service in 1916. He was also against the proposal for the formation of a union government during the war, as he felt it would hurt the party, which it would eventually do. He did support conscription for the war effort, though. While serving in the House of Commons, Bennett had attempted to enlist in the Canadian military, but as he was 44 when the war broke out, he was deemed medically unfit due to the fact that he was missing two toes, and his age. He did support the war effort whenever he could, and during his first years in the House of Commons he gave money to students, widows, and several charities amounting to 10% of his income in a year. Rather than run again in 1917, he chose to leave politics. Around this same time, his mother had passed away, which impacted Bennett deeply. In 1918, Borden went back on a promise to appoint Bennett to the Canadian Senate, choosing William James Harmer, an Alberta Liberal, instead. In his anger, Bennett wrote a 20-page letter to Borden, stating that he did not need position nor money, but he wanted to put his experience and knowledge at the service of his country. Borden sent no reply. Interestingly, the tune of Bennett on the Senate had changed from what he felt earlier. During his Calgary days, he would say that the Senate of Canada was, quote, that body of manufacturers and millionaires sent there by Laurier to be his mouthpiece, end quote. Bennett would find his way back into politics under Arthur Meehan, who appointed him as the Minister of Justice in 1921, in order to strengthen his government. Meehan disliked Bennett, but he respected the influence that he had in the party. Bennett was sworn in as the Justice Minister on September 21, 1921. But when the 1921 election came along, the Liberal Party saw a resurgence under William Lyon Mackenzie King, and Bennett did not win a seat in Calgary West, losing by only 0.1% of the vote. In 1922, Bennett decided it was time to end his time as a partner with Waheed and he would split with the firm after a messy litigation, but he was able to retain several important clients of his own, including A.E. Cross and Pat Burns. In 1924, Bennett was doing quite well. Around 25% of his income came from his legal practice, while director fees accounted for 7%. The biggest share was what he made from dividends, which made up 62% of his income. In all, that year he made $76,897, or $1.16 million today. In 1925, Meehan was again Prime Minister, and he asked Bennett to serve as his Minister of Finance. This time, Bennett threw everything into his campaign in Calgary West, instead of just assuming that he would win. And he was able to win his seat easily as the Conservatives overall won 116 seats to the Liberals' 99. Of course, as we have seen in the past two episodes, this government would not last long, and King would come back into power within a few months. Bennett, once again, had seen his cabinet seat evaporate in a very short time. While the Conservatives lost that election, Bennett was able to keep his seat. And in the House, he would support old-age pensions, 
but he did not like sharing the cost with provinces, feeling that Ottawa should pay for it completely. Bennett also supported unemployment insurance and supported that proposal put forward by Labour politician Abraham Heaps, but he wanted it funded by both the person concerned and the government. At the Conservative Convention in Winnipeg on October 10, 1927, Bennett would be elected as the new leader of the Conservative Party following the resignation of Arthur Meehan. In his acceptance speech, he admitted that while he was rich, he became rich from hard work, and he also promised to resign all directorships that he had. And he would say, quote, No man may serve you as he should if he has over his shoulder always the shadow of pecuniary obligations. End quote. This win put him into the position as leader of the official opposition, and it would take some time for Bennett to hold his own against the more experienced king. But he would and quickly proved himself in the House of Commons. He also got down to work repairing the damage done to the party over the past few years, and he began fixing the relations with Quebec that were still at a terrible low almost 15 years after the conscription crisis. He would establish a central office in Ottawa, which would have 27 full-time employees by 1930. The money for this came from Bennett and senior party members personally. By May of 1930, Bennett had contributed $500,000 or $7.4 million today of his own funds into the party, with 20% alone going into Quebec. While he worked hard, he also wondered what he was doing with his life as the leader of the opposition. And he would say, quote, Sometimes I wonder why I ever undertook this work at my time of my life after all my years of toil and effort. End quote. Unlike with Meehan, King and Bennett generally got along quite well. When the 16th Parliament ended in May of 1930, he and King shared a joke, and after MPs went onto the floor to shake hands, King remarked how pleasant it all was. With the Great Depression beginning in 1930 and the Liberals hurting because of the stagnant economy, an election was called. Bennett began his campaign at 2.30am on June 8, 1930, heading into Winnipeg where he would give his first speech. Bennett's speech would be heard across Canada by one million Canadians and unlike King, who never came off well on the radio, many felt that Bennett did sound good on the radio with a resonant voice that carried well. Over the next two months, from June 9th to July 26th, Bennett did as many as five speeches a day and traveled 22,500 kilometers, or a distance of almost two-thirds around the earth. Bennett was also given a gift when in a rare political blunder, King said that he would not, quote, give Tory provincial governments a five-cent piece, end quote. This blunder would cost King dearly, and it was used by Bennett and the Conservatives as a rallying cry. Bennett would also campaign on a message of fixing the issues hitting the country during the Great Depression. He would say, quote, I propose that any government of which I am the head will at the first session of Parliament initiate whatever action is necessary to that end or perish in the attempt, end quote. At one campaign stop, he would say, quote, The Conservative Party is going to find work for all who are willing to work or perish in the attempt. Mr. King promises consideration of the problem of employment. I promise to end unemployment. Which plan do you like best? End quote. Bennett was also a unique in his desire for women to run as candidates. While the Liberals ran women in ridings where they had no hope of winning, just to gain that female vote, Bennett wanted to run women in safe seats, but he was unable to convince the constituencies to go along with his plan. 
His sister Mildred also joined him on the campaign and displayed a strong political sense along with a sense of humor and charm that made up for the aloofness of her brother. In that election, the Conservatives gained 44 seats, putting Bennett in the role of Prime Minister of Canada, while the Liberals lost 27 seats in a stunning defeat. The biggest surprise came in Quebec, where the party went from 4 seats to 24 seats. Unfortunately, the cabinet that was sworn in on August 7, 1930, had few in the way of French Canadians occupying prominent seats. Bennett himself would take over the cabinet seat of Minister of Finance and Minister of External Affairs, which was in danger of being abolished, but which Bennett was able to save. It was also a good year financially for Bennett, who made over $262,000, or $3.9 million today. This arguably makes him one of, if not the richest person in Canadian history to be elected as Prime Minister. He promised aggressive action to deal with the Depression, but in many ways, that action never came. While Bennett had excellent business skills that did not always serve him in his political interests, as with many other leaders who came to power during the Great Depression, he also underestimated the severity and longevity of it. He also operated on a policy of the free enterprise system, with the government interfering as little as possible. This was the wrong method to deal with the Great Depression. But he didn't just sit on his hands. As Prime Minister, Bennett attempted to deal with the economy by persuading the British to adopt preferential tariffs, and while this did bring relief, it was nowhere near enough. Bennett also wanted a rapid modernization of Canada, and promised that his measures would blast Canadian exports into world markets. The imperial preference policy failed to gain the result that he wanted, and Bennett in many ways had no backup plan. His Unemployment Relief Act would put $20 million in place for public works across Canada as well, which would have more of an impact. In 1931, Bennett's government passed the Unemployment and Farm Relief Act to stop the spiraling of the Depression in Canada, putting another $28 million in direct relief. And the government would pass similar relief acts every year he was in power. As the Great Depression raged on, Bennett's government would set up relief camps for single men, which cost him a great deal of popularity. By 1932, 25% of workers in Canada had no job, and Bennett was forced to give the provinces another $20 million, or $354 million today. At the relief camps, men lived in bunkhouses and were paid $0.20, cents or $3.54 a day, in return for a 44-hour week of hard labour. These camps were run by the military, in their style, always in remote areas of the country. His popularity only decreased due to the fact that he lived at the Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa and that he was a millionaire. Many saw his wealth and impersonal style as evidence of someone who was disconnected from the regular person, which may have not always been the case. It is probable that by the time many of you will be listening to this movie Tone Talk, I will be on my way to my home in Canada. I uh, cannot leave the shores of these islands without expressing the very sincere appreciation and warm gratitude of my sister and myself, as well as of all the members of the Canadian delegation for the boundless hospitality and kindness we have received since we arrived in Britain. Not only has the government been unremitting in its attention, but public bodies and private citizens have vied with one another in extending courtesies which will never be forgotten. While our proposals as to steps that should be taken 
to secure economic cooperation between component parts of our great commonwealth of free peoples have not been adopted by this kingdom, we confidently believe that at the adjourned conference to be held in Canada next year, the views now held by the overseas dominions as to the necessity for and value of mutually advantageous tariff preferences will be held by all. I assure you that Canadians, while working out their own destiny, believe that their contribution to the world's civilization can best be made as subjects of the British Crown, the symbol of our common allegiance. It now remains for me to bid you all goodbye and wish good fortune to all within sound of my voice. In 1932, Canada hosted the Imperial Economic Conference for the first time, which was attended by the independent nations of the British Empire. While Bennett dominated in those meetings, they proved to be unproductive and policies could not be agreed upon. Bennett had suggested that Britain might have free entry into Canada for any products that could not hurt Canadian enterprises, and when he did get a list of Canadian concessions from the British, it was much less than what he had expected. But it was not all dealing with the Great Depression for Bennett during his term in office. Radio was becoming the dominant form of communication in the country, and a question was raised about the constitutional authority of regulating it. Quebec felt that it was a provincial matter, while the federal government wanted to regulate it themselves. It eventually went to the Supreme Court, who decided on June 30, 1931, that it was up to the federal government. From this, a special committee was organized on May 9, 1932, and a bill to set up the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Corporation, the CRBC, was established to regulate all broadcasting in Canada and to set up a nationally owned radio station, which would become the CBC in a few years. At the same time, as communism grew in popularity among the disenfranchised Canadians, Bennett developed a reputation as an anti-communist leader. He would earn the nickname Iron Heel Bennett, thanks to a speech he gave in Toronto in 1932, that alluded to the socialist novel by Jack London of the same name. Bennett would say, quote, What do they offer in exchange for the present order? Socialism, communism, dictatorship. They are sowing the seeds of unrest everywhere. Right in this city such propaganda is being carried on, and in the little out-of-the-way places as well. And we know that throughout Canada this propaganda is being put forward by organizations from foreign lands that seek to destroy our institutions. But we ask that every man and woman put the iron heel of ruthlessness against a thing of that kind. End quote. In his fight against the threat he perceived from communism, Bennett invoked Section 98 of the Criminal Code, which had been enacted by his predecessor Arthur Meehan after the Winnipeg General Strike. It allowed the removal of the presumption of innocence and outlawing potential threats to the state. This allowed individuals who have never been accused of any act of violence to be incarcerated just for attending a meeting of an organization deemed to be a threat to the government. Bennett had the Communist Party of Canada targeted specifically, with eight top leaders in the party, including Tim Buck, arrested in August of 1931. Soon after, during a riot that Buck was not participating in, someone attempted to assassinate him by shooting a gun into his locked cell. Eventually, the backlash grew against Bennett over the matter of the imprisonment, and Buck was released with the others, 
considered heroes for standing up for civil liberties. By 1933, the Great Depression was at its height and Bennett's government was seen as indecisive. The lasting image of this time are cars being towed by horses because the owners could not afford gas. And these vehicles were called Bennett buggies. On March 21, 1933, a Royal Commission on Banking and Currency was organized. Bennett had seen how the Bank of England was able to help Britain during the Great Depression, and while Canada's banking system had not seen a bank failure since 1923, he wanted to have a central bank for the country. In 1934, the Bank of Canada would be created with Graham Ford Tower serving as the first governor. Chartered banks were not happy about this as they had to give up their issuing of banknotes in favour of a national currency, and all gold reserves would be transferred to the Bank of Canada. In 1934, Bennett faced an uphill battle of the Great Depression, and he was becoming isolated and dealing with open revolt within the party towards him. At the same time, Canada's GDP had fallen 40%, and unemployment reached 30%. We did undertake and we carried forward those projects, and when the war has ended, when we were confronted with the inevitable reactions of war, war, be it remembered, that instead of all the nations of the world being engaged in incurring obligations for productive efforts, instead of building viaducts and railways and under public undertakings, we were engaged in the course of destruction. We were destroying. We were sending out in flame and smoke millions of dollars, and we were destroying millions of lives. When the world emerged from that conflict, we, in common with other parts of it, found ourselves in the slough of depression. How great that depression was to be, none of us then knew, for if we had, we would have indeed been filled with despair. And it does seem to me sometimes that providence is extremely kind by not making known to men always that which lies before them, for if they saw before them the toil and the anxiety and the problems that they have to face in the very nature of the responsibilities that they discharge, they'd be unequal to the task imposed upon them. But our country faced the problem. The great dark days of depression were upon us. Our revenues had fallen and were falling. Unemployment was right. Our agrarians no longer found it possible by the development of their wheat fields to find new wealth for there were no purchasers of their commodities. The industrial fabric shivered and shook, as your president has said, because the output of the factories could no longer be purchased by those who had formerly been their customers. And so our world, our little world, in a very short few hours, a few days and months, became indeed greatly depressed. A depression that we soon learned was universal. Not confined to one community or two, but extending to the most remote parts of the world. Visiting alike the older civilizations and the younger. And challenging the confidence and faith and adaptability and resourcefulness of the people to the country as nothing has done before. And I quite agree with what the chairman has said when he indicated that all have suffered. The agrarian has suffered, the manufacturer has suffered, the farmer has suffered, the man who toiled by the day has suffered, the street cleaner has suffered. In every branch of human activity, in every avenue of effort, Men and women have suffered. They have suffered from this depression. They have suffered as they have never suffered before. 
in our own dominion in the province of Saskatchewan, where only a few short years ago we were reaping a larger harvest per acre of wheat than the other part of the world. There was a time when after four successive years of drought, the Dominion of Canada was taking care of over 300,000 men, women, and children who are without means inhabiting homes that they had builded, excellent homes, but where the land that surrounded them was as bare as the carpet here. That is a prop that made a problem for the Canadian people that we met with, that we met, that the Canadian people met by regarding it's a national calamity and making contributions from every province of this dominion of clothes, of vegetables, of everything that made, that would make life possible in that stricken country. At the same time, the nation itself expended millions of dollars so that none in all that country were without, that no one was without shelter, clothing, and food. That was the achievement of those who realized that life was indeed a trust, that all men are our brothers, and that we do not live unto ourselves alone. Bennett would take a further hit after a protest was organized by men in relief camps over the low pay, lack of recreational facilities, isolation from family, and poor food. The Relief Camp Workers' Union was formed and camp workers set out from Vancouver on April 4, 1935 on the On to Ottawa Trek, which I covered last year on the podcast. You can find that episode on my website. The Relief Camp strikers wanted to come to Ottawa to bring their grievances right to the Prime Minister, but Bennett treated the strikers as an insurrection that had to be stopped. This led to the RCMP confronting 3,000 strikers and supporters on July 1, 1935 in Regina, resulting in the Regina riot that left two dead and dozens injured. The public backlash over the response from the government would have a significant consequence for Bennett. About 4,000 men came in in March. We put on uh, demonstrations in Vancouver to try and force Jerry McGear to do something with the federal people. Our demand was for work and wages at trade union rates and an abol- uh, uh, and the abolition of the slave camps. Various things were put forward, you know, various propositions. Nothing would do. But uh, at this meeting, finally everything came to a standstill. Nobody had anything more to offer. We were on the point of being broken up. We're on the point of losing when Slim, Slim Evans said finally, we've either got to get more militant or we've got to quit one of the two. And there was silence for a little while. And up popped this Thomas, who was leader of Division Two. He hung himself afterwards. He got up and said, our main slogan was negotiation with the federal government. All right, the federal government won't come to us. I move that we go to Ottawa. What happened on the boxcars going through, uh, like all the way through, fellas would be discussing political economy. The trip wasn't bad. The the, the, uh, train crews, they didn't try to stop us. They... In fact, I think they pull an extra boxcar sometimes for us. They, they they were very cooperative all the way through. And in the provinces, as we went through, the provincial authorities cooperated as long as we were in there. 
They knew that we weren't going to make any trouble. I think that uh, I can recall best. There were three of us. Um, we were listening to an alderman asking for funds to help the trackers uh, eat. And um, listening to this, then all at once we, some people who were quite observant, could see that there were some furniture trucks coming round to the east side of the square. And uh, then there was nothing. A police whistle blew. The whistles blew, and these big furniture vans that were backed up to the corners, they let the back down, and the young mounties poured out with baseball bats. And they had courts, of course, uh, to clear the streets. And it's not a very nice uh, feeling to have a, a mounted squad uh, move down on you. Although, of course, this is part of the job in controlling a riot. They killed Detective Sergeant Phillips in the first clout, the first onslaught. The police charged 60 or 70 of them wearing steel helmets, the mounted police, and swept people off, uh, off, the, uh, off the square. I remember myself, and this is no exaggeration, that my feet didn't touch the ground. By this time, the battle began to rage in earnest. And there was all kinds of weird happenings. For instance, uh, one police officer hit a, a clergyman by mistake. And, and uh, another man had all his clothes torn off. And uh, there was uh, tear gas and, and the rest. Now, I don't suppose the battle on the market square lasted for more than 20 minutes. I'm, I'm sure it didn't. Bennett, for his part, was not against strikes if he felt they were legitimate. But he felt that public law and order were fundamental, and as it had been stated, he hated communists. In 1935, on the example of the New Deal program in America, Bennett began to take aggressive action towards the terrible economy. He announced that he supported government control and regulation, and he called for progressive taxation, unemployment insurance, health insurance, and other major social reforms. This caused anger within his own party, and the public was not enthused by his new initiatives. For the most part, critics felt that the new initiatives went too far or they felt they did not go far enough. Along with the New Deal program were bills to establish a minimum wage, an 8-hour workday, and a 48-hour work week. He would say in a radio address, quote, In the last five years, great changes have taken place in the world. The old order is gone. We are living in conditions that are new and strange to us. Canada, on the whole, is like a young and vigorous man in the poorhouse. If you believe that things should be left as they are, you and I hold contrary and irreconcilable views. I am for reform, and in my mind, reform means government intervention. It means government control and regulation. It means the end of laissez-faire. End quote. At the start of 1935, the constant stress of the Great Depression was taking its toll on Bennett. In February, he became sick with what he thought was a bad cold, but by March 7th, he was dealing with atrial fibrillation of the heart. He was told he needed to rest for a month and also should consider retiring. While Bennett was gone, his New Deal legislation passed, and the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Act was also passed, which would teach 100,000 farmers how to handle and restore the Dust Bowl area of southern Saskatchewan. In October of 1935, the federal election was held, and Mackenzie King roared back into power with a large majority, and the Conservatives fell down to official opposition status. We didn't achieve everything that we wanted, not by a damn sight, but we did achieve something. 
the depression was still on, but what we did achieve, we, we, we achieved a political turnover in this country. We, we discredited that conservative government to an extent where it never raised its head for another 20 or was it 25 years after that. Uh, in November of that year, in the general election, Bennett made what he called a triumphal tour from coast to coast, ended up in Vancouver in the arena which held 15,000 people, and after about 15 or 20 minutes of the meeting, they had to turn off all the loudspeakers except the ones down to the first few rows of people, you know, on the ice part of the arena, and the rest of us got up and, and walked out, left him talking to a couple of hundred people. It was the classical rejection of his whole policy. He was an ignorant man insofar as he had no idea what the common people of this country thought. He had no idea. Bennett continued to lead the official opposition, often attending the House every single day. And from all accounts, he bore no grudges and accepted that the Canadian people had suffered much under the Great Depression and wanted someone new in power. In 1936, he would travel to New Zealand, Australia and South Africa. And at this time, he had seen his weight go up to 228 pounds, and his doctors ordered him to lose 10 pounds to reduce the strain on his heart. He thought about retiring in 1937, but the party convinced him to carry on. In 1938, knowing that King could call in another election at any point, and knowing that he could not do another campaign, he chose to resign on March 6, 1938. Upon his retirement, King would send a letter of appreciation for his work. Only two months later, on May 11th, his beloved sister Mildred died of breast cancer. He would shut himself into his room at the Chateau, consumed with grief. In August of 1938, Bennett moved to England and took over Lord Beaverbrook's option on a 94-acre property in Surrey. He would return to Canada as his new home was upgraded with proper plumbing and heating, and his last day in Canada would be on January 28, 1939 when he left after hosting a luncheon for 292 people. That same day, he resigned as the MP for Calgary West. In 1941, Bennett became the Viscount Bennett of Mickleham in the court of Surrey and of Calgary and Hopewell in the British Empire. This honour was given to him by Winston Churchill for his unsalaried work in the Ministry of Aircraft Production, managed by his friend, Lord Beaverbrook. On June 26, 1947, while taking a bath, Bennett died of a heart attack in England. Bennett had always enjoyed hot baths, but he was warned to be careful because of his heart, and he would be found the following morning. It needs to be pointed out that during the Great Depression, Bennett was not simply ignoring Canadians. Many saw him as being uncaring, but at nights he would read endless streams of desperate letters and he sent his own money to struggling families. Between 1927 and 1937, it is estimated he donated $2 million or $35.4 million today of his own funds. He would also help put several poor, struggling young men through university using his own funds as well. And as Prime Minister, he often worked 14 hours per day, held several cabinet posts, and made sure that he lived only a short walk from Parliament Hill. Some historians consider that if Bennett had not had to deal with the Great Depression, he may have been regarded as a good, and even great, Prime Minister. During his time as Prime Minister, he also encouraged a young Lester B. Pearson, 
by appointing him to various government inquiries, including the Royal Commission on Price Spreads and the Royal Commission on Grain Futures. He also ensured Pearson received the most excellent order of the British Empire for his work. He would have an influence on another future Prime Minister as well. John Turner, who had served briefly in 1984, knew Bennett when he was a child. Bennett would promote Turner's economist mother to the highest civil service post held by a Canadian woman at the time. In a ranking of the first 20 Prime Minister, Bennett placed 12th. He was also the honorary colonel of the Calgary Highlanders from 1921 to 1947, often visiting the regiment in England during the Second World War, ensuring they always had a turkey dinner for Christmas every year. At the end of his life, he would say, quote, I'll always remember the pit from which I was dug and the long uphill road I had to travel. I'll never forget one step. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Prime Minister R.B. Bennett. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want... You can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Britannica, Wikipedia, CBC, Dalhousie University, Biography, Adventurous Albertans, City Makers, and Calgarians After the Frontier. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.